Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, Chief Science Officer. But this week isn't all about me talking, thank goodness. We have special guests. But before I begin, I want to thank everyone who came out for Wall Street Rides Far on Saturday, where we raised over $760,000 for autism research that will help support things like ASF's pre- and postdoctoral fellowships, our new post-undergraduate fellowships, programs like the Baby Siblings Research Consortium to better understand early signs and features of autism, the Alliance for the Genetic Etiologies of Neurodevelopmental Disorders and Autism, of course, our science webinar series, the Day of Learning, this podcast, Sam Stick Together to Help Siblings Across the Spectrum, and the meetings and initiatives we manage throughout the year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So on this podcast, We're going to tackle one problem or issue affecting young adults and adults with autism. It's something called passing as non-autistic. Before you get upset that you don't like that name, this description was generated with autistic adults. So it's not just something scientists are labeling something that autistics experience. This effect has also been called something called masking or camouflaging. And while my guests do a much better job at describing this, it's a phenomenon where people with autism who can read enough cues, end up adjusting their behavior to just get by as someone without an autism diagnosis, or at least they try to. And they try to hide their autism features to remain somewhat hidden from that diagnosis. Apparently, it can be a conscious or unconscious thing. Some people measuring this have looked at measures of how a person feels inside versus how do they appear to others, and then they analyze the difference in those scores. Other people have used their own scale that they developed. There's been more and more research investigating this and the toll on it that it takes on autistic people to manage this masking or camouflaging or even passing. So what do we need? We need someone to step back, take a look at what the literature says, identify gaps, and think about research moving forward that will both understand this, when it occurs, and in whom and what effects it has. This calls for a systematic review, a grueling, sometimes tedious, but very important exercise. My two guests today, Dr. Aaron Libsack and Dr. Matthew Lerner, both at Stony Brook University, led the systematic review with help from their lab and autistic collaborators who provided insight. Hi, uh, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. My name is Erin Lipsack. I'm currently a clinical psychology PhD student at Stony Brook University, and I work with Dr. Matthew Lerner, who is my advisor. Hi, Dr. And, uh, Lerner. Hi, I'm uh, Matt Lerner. I'm uh, an associate professor of uh, psychology, psychiatry, and pediatrics, and the uh, research director of the Autism Initiative here at Stony Brook. Um, and I'm very fortunate to get to work uh, with Aaron on, on this uh, and other projects um, where we are trying to um, better understand kind of the whole universe and shape of the social uh, phenomenon, interaction, connections, and opportunities, and to facilitate those things uh, for autistic individuals and others. 
So Dr. Lib is back. Can you explain what, what, what about this topic or why was this a topic of interest to you and what, what triggered you or in, encouraged you to take on this, this project? Cause it was no small feat. Yeah. Um, this is something that I've been, you know, noticing in my own interactions with autistic people, um, noticing in my work as a researcher, as a clinician, um, and also have just come across a lot of evidence of this in personal accounts of the lived experience of autistic individuals, also from um, clinical anecdotes over the years. Um, but more recently, over the past, especially 10 years or so, there's been a lot more research looking at this idea of camouflaging or passing or masking um, that I've been constantly really interested in. And one area I'm really um, passionate about as a clinical psychologist is really how this kind of behavior, um, what the outcomes look like long term and short term. Unfortunately, as I started really thinking about trying to design a study that would get at that kind of question, I very quickly started to realize that the evidence base that's out there looking at these different constructs is really all over the place, to put it simply. Um, and so before I could even start trying to get at this idea of there might be some outcomes associated with this behavior that may be positive or negative, really defining this construct in a way that is consistent and using language that's consistent across studies, across groups is something that doesn't appear to be happening yet. And to even wrap my brain around the evidence that exists, I felt like I needed a systematic review but there wasn't one. So my lovely advisor somehow convinced me that conducting one myself would be a great idea. <laughs> um, I had never really done a systematic review as a first author before. Um, and the amount of work that goes into it um, is it's a lot. And I, I did not fully appreciate that prior to this project. So it was definitely a learning experience, but one that I am very grateful to have had. Yeah, and you know, kind of jump jumping off Aaron's Aaron's points. I mean, I think the in many ways it's very good news that this is a topic that um, has truly gotten enough empirical investigation over the last decade that uh, a systematic review is even possible. You know, I know when I was in graduate school, you know, this was sort of still at the status of an idea that was discussed in blogs and experience, you know, lived narratives of autistic people and people and scientists were just barely being to think about the question, maybe we could actually study this and understand this and, and help to kind of better parameterize and do what we're trying to do with autism science, which is, you know, be able to understand um, what that experience is about and in a way that can, we can make a better world uh, for, for everybody, including autistic people. And so on the one hand, I was really excited when Aaron said, you know, there's actually quite a, there's like a lot of papers here now in our lab. We've done a lot of uh, meta-analyses in the past. And I was, I at first kept saying, Aaron, can we do a meta-analysis? What if we, yeah. can we, can we ask this question? Can we look at the association between, you know, whatever this phenomenon is and anxiety, you know, we can look at association with age association with gender. You know, these are, these are claims that, you know, these are things that we've taught, we've been talked about for a long time. And, 
Aaron managed to con- convince me, well, not just convince me, show me just how messy the literature is and how much we are not even, it's such a young literature that we're not yet in a place that there's enough in common to, to do those things. And so I think that that's sort of where we, we kind of came together and said, okay, we need to kind of put a benchmark out there sort of for the field that says, this is sort of what everyone has said up till this point. And this is some attempt at trying to provide a framework for what that integration would be. So that in a few years, someone could do a meta-analysis and actually make some more consistent claims. Well, I briefly described it in the introduction, but I probably should defer to the experts here because you have aptly used the term passing as non-autistic as a category that includes what has been previously described as masking or camouflaging um, or flying under the radar or hiding. Could you tell us what this means in your words, since you guys are the experts? Yeah. So this term that we're introducing in this paper was something that we didn't set out to do, but in reviewing the literature and having these conversations with our colleagues and autistic people um, who were giving us input along the way and helping us think about these ideas, it became clear that many of the terms that exist carry some not so great connotations for autistic people and can be um, really more of like ableist language and we wanted to stay away from that. Um, So we came up with this term with our colleagues and we wanted to use it to describe this phenomenon of behaving in ways that either um, appear inconsistent with the presence of autism or like you said, like fly under the radar, maybe of like diagnostic tools. And our working definition is this overarching umbrella term to encompass the array of conceptual terminological variations used to describe autistic individuals who behaviorally present um, as non-autistic in social contexts, but this is despite these experienced differences that may be going on at a cognitive level, a behavioral level, um, or physiological level, um, but are not appearing that way on the outside. Um, And it's really meant to be inclusive of all of these different ideas, regardless of if this behavior is unintentional or intentional, if it's conscious or unconscious, we really wanted to try to include all of these different ideas under one umbrella. Exactly. And I do want to want to just reiterate just how variable the terminology was. I'm just I was you know pulling up that section of the paper and just even looking briefly, you know, we have camouflaging and masking is the most common, which is what you mentioned. But there's also passing and uh, ad- adaptation, um, assimilation. Um, there's there's one that used a term like sort of like superficial social behavior, which sort of took a lot of digging to figure out whether or not to actually figure out that that was being used in the same way. But once again, as, as Aaron said, terms like that are potentially very loaded. And so we're trying to figure out how to we're trying to figure out how to kind of navigate among that. And, and again, in particular, by um, uh, calling upon some of our, our trusted um, autistic uh, colleagues um, to say, you know, what sort of going through all of this, understanding kind of where not just the field of the community is now, you know, is there is there a term that could be used to be an, an umbrella? 
So what's involved here? So there's this, just describe, there's all this different literature by different authors and different ways of describing it, not just the term for it, but how it's defined. So describe to me kind of the process of how you pulled all of this together. I had a lot of help. Um, So the first step in a systematic review is really defining your keywords that you're going to be using to typically search databases of these empirical research articles. um, And that first step is what I thought would be the easiest. But in this particular study, it was honestly one of the more challenging things. So I spent a lot of time looking at some of the um, research that I was aware of on camouflaging and masking and passing and looking at the language that was most commonly used and kind of adding terms as I went to my list of keywords. So once I had my list of keywords, um, I had two very very wonderful research assistants who um, conducted a very thorough search of a couple of research databases using these keywords in very specific combinations, which is part of a systematic review because we include all of this information in the manuscript so that somebody further down the line can hypothetically use our same criteria and find our results and then also the new results. You can restrict by date. We didn't because we wanted to, again, be really inclusive of everything that's out there, um, going back as far as we could. And then once those research articles have been identified with those keywords, um, I checked for consistency with the two coders um, and we screened all of the abstracts to make sure that they really met our inclusion criteria. So were the articles written in English because that is our spoken language, realizing that it's not completely inclusive and things like, um, was it a published paper rather than um, a preprint or um, a fictional account? We wanted to look at empirical research, um, things like that. So once those were identified, then we narrowed it down, made sure there were no duplicates, and we examined those articles. There were four coders, and we had a very detailed um, coding form that we filled out, all four of us, um, for specific variables that we're interested in measuring. So things like did the researchers um, report participant characteristics like gender or race? Um, How did they measure this pan or passing as non-assistic concept? Um, All sorts of different things. And then we looked at that for reliability. So it's a very long process, as you said, but yeah, really rewarding. So what were your overall findings? I think the biggest finding is that this phenomenon is happening. It's definitely a real thing that is being widely reported. Um, That is the absolute take-home message. I think two of the biggest questions I had going into this study and that reviewers were really interested in, and I think many people will be wondering about, is these associations that are commonly or have been commonly talked about in the existing literature about this possible association between passing as non-autistic and potential internalizing problems like anxiety, depression, suicidality, um, and also the potential for there to be a gender difference in that um, it's been hypothesized that females may be more likely to engage in this passing behavior for numerous reasons that we can talk about. But those were two of the really big questions going in. And 
For the internalizing question, it does seem based on this review that there is an association between passing us on autistic and increased internalizing problems. However, that comes with a really big caveat to say that we have no idea what the direction of that relationship is. It could be that people who experience higher levels of anxiety and depression are more likely to camouflage or mask autism symptoms. It may be the case that the stress of passing is associated with increased levels of anxiety and depression. We don't know, but it does seem like there is a real association there. In terms of the gender question, this one was even um, more difficult to kind of find a clear story. There were a lot of studies who looked at gender differences, and it seems like the majority of those studies that looked for gender differences found them or reported them, which as we know, that could be indicative of a real gender difference. It could be indicative of a publication bias. There's a lot of different reasons that could come up. But when looking more closely, it's really difficult to tell if there is a clear story about what that gender difference is. This is because a lot of the studies who were looking at gender differences weren't just looking at how frequently are people engaging in this behavior. Um, they were looking at the types of passing behavior, um, how successful that behavior was, what settings they were using it in. So if you're finding a gender difference, Okay, but that could mean a lot of different things across these different questions. And even in the studies that we're finding consistent um, bias towards females being more likely to engage in higher rates of passing behavior, it's hard to draw that conclusion because their methods of measuring passing were so different. And in some cases, there were several overlapping samples. So it may just be an effect of these are the same people. And so they're reporting the same behaviors. So again, there may be gender differences, but it's really difficult at this point to say anything concrete about what that really looks like. I would agree with Erin. Those are definitely the big, big take-home messages. Um, I think other key, key findings that might be a little bit more below the fold, but I think are, are no less important, is um, one thing we found is, is the, the really dramatic underrepresentation of racial um, and ethnic minorities. In fact, only a quarter of all of all the studies we sampled even reported participant race or ethnicity data. So again, we don't know if the, what that is, right? We don't know why that is, but uh, it certainly it's, it was a little shocking because you know, many journals have publication standards where they say you have to report this, and it's not out there. And, and um, many funding agencies require researchers to gather that information. So it could right. be that researchers are gathering this, but it's not being reported in these articles. Yeah. And it also means that really important um, intersectional questions that we sort of tried to grapple with a little bit in the paper, um, kind of, it's almost, we can't ask them yet with the current literature. So, you know, for instance, the, the issue of whether or not, for, uh, for instance, you know, Black autistic folks are experiencing sort of a, a double burden of sort of code switching and passing at the same time, or if one doing one facilitates the other because it's a common set of skills. You know, these are really important questions for the lived experiences of these people that, that really guide ways to help, right? They, they lead to very different implications in terms of what we should do as a society, supports that we can provide, environmental guidance that we can provide to workplaces and, and, and spouses and, and, and teachers um, that we can't really ask yet in the current literature.
I think a second one is, uh, is that almost all studies formally or informally excluded participants with intellectual disabilities. So, you know, one question that has come up, well, what about this question of, you know, if you uh, have language challenges or other uh, intellectual challenges, you know, how does this phenomenon play out? Is it, what does this look like? Um, well, right now, we can't even ask that question yet because almost no one has looked at this phenomenon in that population. As a Which caveat, again, I just want to mention there were a couple studies that did include individuals with higher support needs. Um, however, those samples of individuals were much smaller um, to a degree, like Matt is saying, that it, it made it very impossible to make any conclusions about differential findings. Yeah. It's certainly not trivial to the experiences of uh, autistic people with intellectual disabilities. It's also not trivial to understanding what this phenomenon of panning is, right? Because, you know, if, if we think about it, you know, one way to think about it is, you know, a, a set of strategies that autistic folks pick up to navigate a world that in many cases isn't sufficiently accommodating. Another way to think about it is like cognitive tools and behaviors that people kind of use to, this is this old idea of the hacking hypothesis, sort of using mental effort to sort of figure things out. Those are really different things and they have different implications for for instance, you know, whether or not how we understand this phenomenon in, in, in intellectual disabilities. And, and the third below the fold piece that I just sort of something Aaron said, and I want to reinforce it, which is just the mixed methodologies, the fact that we, you know, it's a very different thing to measure this phenomenon as a self-report questionnaire of, you know, are you doing things that we are calling camouflaging or uh, the discrepancies between different uh, perception of different reports or different uh, performance on different tasks. Um, and so as a result of that, it even made it hard to get towards the claim, for instance, you know, there and made about the internalizing association, right? We, we could sort of tentatively say based on just over a half dozen studies that, that, that there does seem to be a pattern of effect there. But um, it was really, it, there was a lot of, we were pretty close to apples and oranges, you know, maybe we were at apples and tangerines or something <laughs> in terms of trying to, uh, to make sense, uh, uh, make sense of it. And you know, we'd like to, we hope that one thing we can do is at least guide the literature towards in the future, maybe at least getting us towards oranges and tangerines. So that leads me to my last question, which is, um, if you had a wish list, and um, I used to call it Oprah Winfrey money, but now I call it Jeff Bezos money, to <laughs> be able to settle some of these questions, what are some of the gaps in research that really need to be addressed? Well, I have a very long list. Okay. <laughs> I a, think towards the top of all. that list is really to have future research um, including and seeking input from autistic individuals, not just academics or scientists, but community members um, who are affected by this phenomenon that we're trying to study to really try to address the biases that neurotypical people are inevitably going to introduce into this kind of research, but also making sure that the priorities of the autistic community are really central and guiding this research going forward. I think that the representation of the broader autistic population really needs to be improved. And I think that starts with being very explicit about these demographic variables that are not well characterized so far. 
I think that these questions about intersectionality and looking at, I think we have an ethical responsibility to investigate questions of race and ethnicity specifically within this passing as non-assistic phenomenon because of, I mean, you can look at this many different ways, but it may be that Black autistic people feel more pressure, societal cultural pressure to um, conform to these neurotypical norms. It may be in their best interest safety wise to do so. We know that um, different behaviors are interpreted by people differently depending on the race or ethnicity of the person showing that behavior. So these are really important questions that we're not even beginning to consider let alone diagnostic and treatment um, implications from somebody who is engaging in passing as non-assistic and they're not being identified and they're not getting services that they might need. Um, So kind of balancing those issues, I think is really important going forward, but we haven't even started to look at any part of that. I think that extending this research to be inclusive of autistic individuals with different cognitive and language abilities is really important. And importantly, that's going to mean different kinds of methods, even more so being introduced. But I think that could actually be really beneficial um, to look beyond this self-reporting kind of method that is really characteristic of a lot of these studies that exist right now. And I think, again, it's another way to center the experience, the lived experience of the broader autism population. I, I would say I have won Bezos money if he you know, said, here's a, here's a lot of money to do this study. You know, what's, what's something that, that you would want to do right now, given where the field is? And I think being able to do more comprehensive uh, comparison across measurement approaches, right? Because there are these different measurement approaches that we, that we talked about. And, you know, I had this thought, I was like, maybe there should be like a standardized, you know, bank or whatever, like, you know, in a shoebox. But the fact of the matter is we don't even know that yet. I think instead we shouldn't understand how these things converge. What is the relationship of the cat cue to these other, to some of these other measurement approaches? Do these relationships differ among folks who are formally diagnosed versus, you know, and, and diagnosed with an ADOS and other kind of formalized measures or not, right? Because we hear a lot about this phenomenon in the adult autism community, including many folks who were not, who have not had the opportunity to even seek a diagnosis, but they, this phenomenon really resonates with them. Um, I don't, and I, I think we, I think we scientifically sometimes have a tendency to kind of brush aside or invalidate, you know, say, oh, well, this person didn't get an ADOS, you know, we can't include them. I think, I think it's an empirical question. I think we need to be able to compare what's, what does this phenomenon look like across measures, across people at different ages, at different mm-hmm. diagnostic statuses who've been who've addressed, have this addressed at different methods. So we can actually, again, like paint the landscape a little bit more. In reality, as with almost everything in autism and frankly, almost everything in people, it's probably a variety of shades of things that are, similar and overlapping with one another, but have enough different kind of peaks and valleys that it's important to help understand where people live uh, in that landscape. I think what Matt's saying right now is something we talked a lot about during the production of this manuscript in that many of the studies, although there were a lot of different diagnostic methods used to confirm autism diagnosis, overwhelmingly it was based on a clinical or community diagnosis from a pediatrician, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, um, a school 
um, and very few studies included individuals who self-identified as autistic without a formal diagnosis. And if we're trying to study a phenomenon, which is by definition somebody behaving in ways that may make it more difficult for them to receive a diagnosis or to skirt diagnosis, I think that the existing literature is really biased in that we're only looking right now at people who have that diagnosis. So that's leaving a huge group of people out potentially. Yeah. When I was reading this, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if there was one measure and we could look at, you know, racial and ethnic differences, cultural differences across countries, gender differences. But the reality is, is that this experience is different based on each person, their own abilities or disabilities access that they have in their community to these different instruments, right? And I think the, speaking of different settings, I think another avenue that will be really important going forward is looking at the context in which people are, I don't want to say choosing, because again, we don't know if this is something that is necessarily intentional, but the outcomes of passing as non-autistic is going to vary depending on the situation. And I think it's really important to consider things like social interventions, some of which are really targeting these behaviors and teaching neurotypical social skills based on these neurotypical expectations. And I want to be clear that we're also not saying that passing as non-autistic is necessarily beneficial or necessarily harmful. It's likely a mix depending on the individual, depending on their environments and their accommodations. Um, It's going to vary. I think it's more about allowing people to make their own informed choices and be aware of the pros and the cons um, if we get to that point. Um, And I think this is also complicated by the factor of age, right? A lot of individuals start receiving services at a really young age where they're not the ones making those choices. Um, Regardless of if the individual has autism or not, all kids are usually governed by their parents and what parents are picking out. And I think it's another really important question to look at is the developmental trajectory of this kind of behavior. Looking at that question further and in a way that is longitudinal um, and not Mm -hmm. just cross-sectional is going to be really important as this field increases. I will say one last comment that if the direction is that, and I know you don't know if it's what the direction is, but if this passing as non-autistic is then related to increased internalizing behaviors, then I think we really need to focus that as, as possibly being detrimental. Again, you make a good point we don't know which way it's going and it could actually be these internalizing behaviors that may in fact be driving passing as non-autistic. But for me, that seems like an area that we need to continue to, to focus on. I do want to just take a, say a one, one key thing, which is while we're here talking about, you know, there's so little that we know and it's all kind of, everything's very messy and inconsistent. Um, I guess my one kind of ray of hope around that is, this is actually very normal for such a young area of study. I mean, you know, it's been, what was it, Aaron, 15 years or 18 years since the first published paper that we found? Oh, no, there is much older papers, but using the actual term, I think, of yeah. camouflaging is yeah. what we were looking at. And that was yeah. like 16 years ago or something. Right, right. So about 16 years ago. So, you know, it's it actually is in some ways a good thing. It's, it's, it's indication of sort of, 
the healthiness of the interest of this science that people are kind of coming out and, with different measures and trying to compare them and look at different populations and, you know, and, and trying to make sense of this in a way that, that can kind of cohere and it fits with what we understand about the population. And, and that's, and that's normal and, and good and show, and the fact that it's starting to happen, the fact that we're able to even draw some conclusions, you know, based on some quantitative data, you know, that's heartening, even if they're provisional. And, you know, I strongly suspect that, you know, if Aaron and I decide or someone else decides in 10 years to redo this, um, there'll be a, actually a lot of these, these uh, wish lists uh, will start to be fulfilled even without Bezos money. I think sooner than that, because just over the past year and a half since COVID started, there has been such a proliferation in just this area. It's been really incredible to watch. I want to thank both of our podcast guests, Dr. Aaron Libsack and Dr. Matthew Lerner, not just for conducting the study, but also for participating in this podcast and also acknowledge all the co-authors who did a lot of work as well. And so what I'll do is post the link to the article where you can see all the authors in the podcast summary. And so you can can link to it. And of course, email me if you want a full copy of it. Thank you guys so much. And we really look forward to talking about this issue in the future and getting more research on it. Thank you so much for having us. It was our pleasure. Thank you.